All right. Are you guys happy to be here this morning? Good. I, I was uh, just saying to someone today, uh, Sunday is my favorite day of the week. There's not even a question about it. I just love, we are blessed to be a part of this family that we have here. You guys are awesome. And uh, I just love being a part of it. For those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirks. I'm the main teaching pastor here at Southland. And uh, we're in this series on Joseph, which I'm going to uh, start winding down now. I'm going to do uh, today's and then two more. Two more weekends after this. And then after that, it's, it's uh, Thanksgiving. Pastor Ray will preach. And then after that, we'll start something new. Um, so I'm going to start winding it down. And so last week we talked about, uh, uh, you know, Joseph was interpreting a famous, you know, part of the story, right, is the, the dreams. Joseph is interpreting the, the cupbearer and the baker's dreams. And then we even got into Genesis 41, and we looked how uh, uh, Joseph interpreted, you know, that's probably one of the most famous parts of the whole story, where Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams and the seven uh, cows and the, and the grains and all that sort of stuff. Well, what I want to do today is we're going to finish off that chapter 41. So we already looked last week at the the interpretation of the dream and all that sort of stuff. But I want to just, uh, t- in today's message, I want to look at uh, two details in Genesis 41, two details surrounding, one before, one after, surrounding the, you know, the whole part where Joseph foretells or, uh, or interprets uh, Pharaoh's dream. We're going to look at those two details. They're small. Most people never notice them because we're so caught up with the dream part. And, uh, and, but, but they're powerful, powerful truths. We're going to talk about the Spirit of God today. And then in the next two weeks, we'll cover off those scenes where uh, Joseph is finally reunited with his brothers and, of course, when his family comes to Egypt and all that. But, uh, but today, we want to look at chapter 41, two small but important details in the whole story of Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dream. Why don't you bow your heads with me, close your eyes, and let's pray, and then we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, again, we just again and again and again, we just thank you for your word, and I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Jesus, that when we look at your word together and our hearts are actually open to you, you actually will change us. You, you actually will touch us this morning if we want you to, and your word never goes back to you void. I just know that if we just meditate on this stuff, you're going to change our lives today, and that's what we want. And I pray that you would do that today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Genesis 41 verse 1, the, uh, the, the famous story there of, the, of Pharaoh's dream, but we're going to look at the two little details, and we start in verse 1. After two whole years... Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile after two whole years. Now again, this is a famous story, I know, and most of you know, you know, we, most of us, if you've grown up in the church, you've read this story many times, you've watched the movies and all that sort of stuff, and so you know what's going on here, but we just have to stop for just a second. We have to get the context. So after two whole years, two whole years of what, okay? Again, many of you know, but let's just take a little bit of time and just put ourselves back in the scene. In order to figure out what the two whole years of what are, we've got to go back and look at four verses in uh, chapter 40 that we didn't have a chance to, to all look at uh, last week. And we have to look particularly at a request Joseph makes. I didn't have time for this part last week when we were in chapter 40, but, but a request that Joseph makes of the cupbearer after he interprets his dream. So we're going to go there so we can figure out this whole two, two whole years thing. If we go back to chapter 40, verse 12, Joseph says to the cupbearer, and this part we looked at last week, this is its interpretation. He's interpreting his dream. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Okay? Now here's the part that we didn't get to last week, verses 14 and 15. Only remember me 
when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. And the reason I just want to look at these, these passages here uh, for just a moment is in these two last verses here, 14 and 15, we finally get a little window into Joseph's soul. Okay? Up to this point in the series, I mean, we're in part, I think it's eight today. Uh, up to this point in the series, we've looked lots at all of Joseph's suffering. We've seen him betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, tempted by Potiphar's wife, put unjustly into the dungeon where he is now. So we've, we've, we've looked lots already in this series at suffering and how Joseph has suffered, okay? And we've seen him through all of that suffering. We've seen him be faithful, unbelievably faithful. Well, you know, we've seen him work hard for Potiphar. We've seen him work hard in the prison. We've seen him resist temptation. He's gone through all of this suffering, and he's been faithful. He's, he's loved God. He's feared God. He's served others. We've looked at all this stuff. But one thing we haven't seen yet in this series is we haven't actually looked into his heart at all, and we haven't seen how he feels about all of this. And, and it's, I think it's really important that we do that because what we see here in these two verses is, because is, you can kind of get the idea after a little while, you start to think like Joseph is, is, is totally Superman, okay? He's gone through all this stuff, but he's been faithful, he's been trustworthy, he's had integrity, he's been pure, he's been holy in all of his suffering. We just think Joseph is so amazing and you almost forget the fact that he's still a human being and he, in his feelings and his life, he's actually suffering, Okay? What do we see here? We see this like kind of cry. We see his heart crying out to the cupbearer. He says, please remember me. You know, do me the kindness for I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be in this jail. We can see the cry of his heart. And I think this is really important because I think sometimes we as Christians, we get this caricature. We get this kind of cartoon figure in our mind of what some of these spiritual giants were like. And, it's, and we don't stop to think of the fact that they actually hurt, just like we hurt, and they actually feel pain, just like we feel pain. It, you know, Joseph didn't get up every morning in the dungeon, you know, whistling a little tune, and, you know, he didn't get up every morning, you know, he's, he's a slave in Potiphar's house. Yes, he was faithful. Yes, he did his best. Yes, he served. Yes, he kept his integrity. But it's not like we see here in his heart. It's not like he got up every morning and he was just happy all the time. It's not like he, he was faithful because everything felt good and he was just so super spiritual that nothing could get him down and he was always whistling a tune and nothing affected him. That's not at all how Joseph was like. Joseph's time in prison and slavery hurt. It hurt him. He didn't want to be in jail. He didn't get up every morning and just he was so super spiritual. Thank you, Lord, that I can be in the dungeon. Oh, thank you, God. And, and just, you know, some kind of fake spirituality. And I think this is really, really important um, I think it's important because, again, like I said, I think we have this cartoon sometimes in our mind, this caricature that we think that if a person walks close enough with Jesus, like if you just have enough intimacy with Jesus, if you just are spiritual enough with God, if you're spiritual enough with Jesus, he makes you joyful and at peace all the time. Now certainly, okay, certainly it's true in Scripture, and, we, and certainly it's wonderful. If you walk with Jesus, you know that there's a peace that passes all understanding when you walk with Jesus, no question. And yes, certainly when you walk with Jesus, you, you, there are joys, there are wells of joy that are open to you that are not open to you if you don't walk with Jesus. Certainly, I'm not saying that isn't the case. But having said that, if you go through the Bible and look at the different Bible characters, if you go through the, the history of the faith and great men and women of God and even great men and women of God living today that you know, you will find that people, even 
even people who really, really love Jesus and walk with him, they have times of discouragement. They have times where they almost despair. I mean, you look at some of Moses' stuff that he went through. We talked about that last year in summer. And, but you look at Moses and Daniel, and now you see here, even with Joseph, you look that just the fact that you walk closely with God and you're faithful with him does not mean you don't feel pain. It's not that Jesus gives you this Teflon heart, and now you just, woo, you just whistle, and woo, you don't mind suffering. No, people who follow God will sometimes have feelings that aren't happy. And you will go through periods where it's dark, and, and you don't feel guilty about it then, like, why am I, why am I discouraged in this dark time? God's people sometimes feel discouraged, and Joseph doesn't like it that he's in prison. He wants out. He doesn't like it that he had to go through years of slavery and prison and all of that, okay? So following Jesus is not a get-out-of-discouragement-free card. Being close to Jesus is not a you'll feel happy all the time because Jesus will help you feel happy. Yes, he will help you find joy even in dark times, but you won't always feel happy when you're following Jesus, okay? The key that we see, and the reason I want to, wanted to blow this up for a, for a few minutes here, the reason I wanted to just stop here and pay attention to the fact that, that Joseph hurt is because the thing I want you to notice is that he wasn't paralyzed by his pain. See, if we don't stop and just pay attention to the fact that he actually did hurt in his, in his pain, we just look at his faithfulness and we go, oh, great for Joseph. He was faithful, but Joseph didn't hurt like me. We might not consciously think that, but we'll subconsciously think that. You know, Joseph never faced discouragement like me. Joseph never faced disappointment like me. He was so super spiritual. He, was just, he just didn't feel that stuff, and that's why he was faithful. No, no, no. Joseph got up some mornings, and he was discouraged, and he was sad, and he was hurting, and he was still faithful. It was, when you think of Joseph serving in Potiphar's house, you know, we think of him, and, we, and I preached a whole message on that. And how he was faithful. Every day he was a slave. He was sold into slavery and he gave it his all and he was the best slave he could be and he worked hard. And if you focus on that truth alone without looking at these two passages here, you almost get this idea like, wow, Joseph. I mean, he just relished being a slave. It's not that he relished being a slave. He missed, he missed it. He says, I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. He misses his family. He misses the land he was taken from. And you have to understand that because even in that hurt, even in that discouragement, it's there that he was faithful, even with those feelings inside of him. It was there that he was faithful. And there are times when we have to be faithful in our discouragement. And discouragement is not an excuse to not be faithful and to not do our best and all those sorts of things. And that's the important thing about Joseph that I want you to get here in this first point is that Joseph was not immune to pain. The difference between him and so many Christians today is that he was not paralyzed by his pain. Joseph was not derailed by his pain. Joseph was not um, paralyzed by his pain. And that is just so different than so many Christians today. So many Christians today are paralyzed by their pain at a past church somewhere. I mean, not here, right? Because we're pretty much perfect here. But anyway, at a different church one time, there was someone who wasn't perfect, and thing, bad things happened to them in that church that shouldn't have happened to them. And they were betrayed, and they were talked bad about, and they were this and that and accused and all this sort of stuff. And so people carry that around with them, and the next thing you know, they're not in the game. They come to church, but that's it. They're not going to risk for God anymore. They're not going to serve. Or someone died, or they got real sick. Something real disappointing happened to them in their life. 
and, and life didn't turn out the way they wanted to. And now they're sidelined by their pain. They're paralyzed by their pain. And the thing you have to see is you have to see Joseph's pain here so you see the parallel that he also felt pain. But the difference was he wasn't paralyzed by it. He continued to serve. He continued to work hard. He continued to do his best. He continued to fear God. He continued to love others and interpret other people's dreams and all this other sort of stuff while he felt pain. And it's hugely, hugely important. And I think a big part of the problem is, because that's just the way I think as I pray about these things and I study, I said, Lord, why? Why is it that so many Christians today, when they run into that massive disappointment in life and things don't turn out, and isn't that just true, some of you? You've had life just not turn out at all how you would have liked. Things with your kids, things with your marriage, things with just everything. And your life now is such a disappointment to you compared to what you had hoped it would be and to what you thought it would be. And you carry around this pain now. And the question is, how come is it that that pain sidelines some of it, us, but when we look at Joseph, it didn't sideline him? How come is he still listening to God? How come is he still serving God? How come is he giving still his all to his slave masters and his prison you know, guards and all sorts of stuff? How can he not be paralyzed by it? And I, I'm going to tell you, so at, at its core, at its core, I believe it really comes down to we have a false understanding. We have a, we have a wrong concept of what salvation is and what it means to follow God. And I talk about this a lot. You'll hear me say this a lot. We have a wrong idea of what salvation is. I think, I think our wrong perspective, our wrong perspective of life and what it means to follow God and what it means to be saved and all sort of stuff, I think that's a big, the reason I talk about it in so many messages is because it really does inform how we live. And I think a big part of the reason why a guy like Joseph is not sidelined by his pain, that in his hurt he continues to follow God and to give his all, and many others don't, has to do with a perception he had about himself and about God and a wrong perception we have about Christianity and what it means to follow God. And I'll tell you what it is. We have lost sight of the fact that the Christian life is about a death. Now, some of you are nodding your heads there and you're going, yeah, preach it, brother. It's about Jesus' death. Yes, it is about Jesus' death. But that's not the death I'm talking about. See, we all know that the Christian life is all about a death, that Jesus died for us. What we miss many of us at its core, even if, you know, not consciously, but more of a subconscious thing, the way we live and the way we act is that we have missed the fact that because Jesus died, I'm now supposed to. And we forget that the Christian life is actually about a death. Jesus died in order that I may have his life, not that he would add his life to mine, like I just keep on living, and now Jesus adds his life on top. Hallelujah. Oh, Lord, it's so awesome. Thanks for giving me more life than I had before. That's not what the Christian life is. The Christian life is Jesus died so that you can have life, and you only get his life if your old one dies. And when you die, you get in exchange, you get his life, not him adding his life onto yours. And I could show you, I had to take them all out because, because it's just going to take too long in the message today. But I'll show you one verse, Romans 12, verse 1. Paul says this about the Christian life. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, this is kind of a famous verse, and we talk about it. It's sort of a good verse. Like, you know, people like it, and it's on Christian radio, and it's, oh, yeah, make your, your body's got to be a living sacrifice. Do we have actually ever stop to think about what it means to be a sacrifice? I mean, what does it mean to be a sacrifice? This is not Paul using rosy motivational techniques. 
You know, come and follow Jesus because your whole life's going to be way more positive and easy and wealthy and good. No, no. Paul says, when you follow Jesus, you make your life a living sacrifice. You know what, sacrif- you know what sacrifices did? They died. Okay? We don't, we don't do that anymore now because, well, I mean, because Jesus died on the cross and Greenpeace would, would hate us. But, uh, but so we want to keep the killing of animals behind closed doors. We just eat the hamburger and pretend it, you know, that wasn't an animal at some point or whatever. But, but, but I, that's what a sacrifice was. You take the lamb, you kill it. Okay? It's dead. This is about a death. Now, it's not talking about a physical death. That's why he says, you know, I'm glad Paul put in living sacrifice because some people might have taken this to a bad place. Okay? Living, our physical bodies, he's not talking about us killing our physical bodies. It's a living sacrifice. Our physical body continues living. But every single thing else has to die. Everything else. Okay? Your life, when you give your life to Christ, this is so important. And I'm going to tie this back to Joseph in just a second. This has everything to do with how you handle pain in your life. Yes, your physical body, you give your life to Jesus, your physical body keeps on living because it's a living sacrifice. But everything else in your life has to die. That means that you used to live and it was all about you and it was all about your decisions, all about making you happy. It was all about what puts you ahead, all sorts of stuff. And after you become a Christian, it's not that you just add Jesus to that. Like my whole life, I've just wanted to have a better life and I've, I've wanted to be a good person and I get Jesus and he helps me be a good person and he helps me do all these things better than I used to do. No, no, no. Everything dies and now you get him. Now, what does that mean, dies? It's no longer about you. That's the part that has to die. That's the part that's so, that's so painful. And of course, like I said, now here's the thing about being a sacrifice. It hurts, okay? It hurts to be a sacrifice. But the sacrifice doesn't get up off the altar. It doesn't say, oh, I've got a little blood here. I'm out. I'm out of the game. I've been cut. It's a little uncomfortable on my back lying on this, on this pile of rocks. Okay? The, the, the sacrifice doesn't get up off the altar because it's painful. That is what a sacrifice is. A sacrifice goes to die. That is what the Christian life is. Not adding Jesus into your life. The Christian life is an exchange. I don't get Jesus in addition to my life. I give him my old one and I get his life. Now that is a radical, that is a radical, 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 first of all, biblical. It's not new. It's not a new way of looking at salvation. It's the biblical way of looking at salvation. But it's a radical way of looking at salvation compared to how we live it today, which is I'm just going to add Jesus into what I'm already doing. No, no, Jesus says, I won't give you my life unless you give up yours. So it's a sacrifice. Now, when you, again, and of of course, you know, we've all heard this preached a hundred times. You know, like we've all heard that. You know, pick up your cross and follow me. You've got to die to self. It's all about dying to self, yada, yada, yada. Um, And so we have the theory in here, and this is where the Joseph story comes in. We have the theory. I mean, anybody who's been in this church for more than, you know, more than, you know, a few months, I'm sure you've heard this theme before. You've got to die to yourself. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. You've got to, you know, live all that sort of stuff. And so we have the theory in our heads. The theory in my head is, yes, I'm a Christian. I have to die to myself so Jesus' life can come in me. But we don't know how that actually looks, looks in real life. And that's why I love the Joseph story. Because the Joseph story shows us what a living sacrifice looks like. The Joseph story shows us the theory in practice in real life. Was Joseph betrayed? Yes. Was he unjustly accused? Yes. Was he hurt by people? Yes. Did he hurt in his slavery? Yes. Did he hurt in the dungeon? Yes, 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 and yes. He had all of that pain, all of that bad stuff done to him. But 
Was Joseph still soft towards God? Yes. Did Joseph still listen to God? Yes. Did Joseph still put others first? Yes. Did Joseph, so yes, did he have pain on one side? Yes. But did he still give his absolute best to serve people and serve God and love God on the other hand? Yes to both. This is what a living sacrifice looks like. You hurt, but because your life isn't your own, you gave your life away. It isn't yours anymore. It's not about you. And since it's not about you, pain doesn't derail you anymore. Because you were never in it for your own comfort and gain. You were always in it for Jesus. You were always in it for him. You fear him. You love him. And so Joseph, yes, he has pain. But on the other hand, at the same time that he struggles with pain and hurt, on the other hand, he's still soft to God. He's still serving. He's still uh, you know, working and giving his best and all that sort of stuff. Now, of course, just a little caveat here, just for a, a second. I don't mean here. You know, I'm not trying to say that there's never a time in your life when you, you know, there's not a time of healing where you sort of pull back. You know, somebody dies, you have a very traumatic experience, and there's certainly, there's times in life where you, you kind of pull back. That's not what I'm talking about, and there's a healing time. I'm not saying that there isn't such a thing as that. There is. But what I'm talking about is people where your pain just paralyzes you and derails you, and that's it. And Joseph, Joseph didn't have that because it wasn't about him. And I think a lot of Christians are just hung up because they have a subconscious sense of entitlement. I think a lot of us, Instead of having a proper understanding of Christianity is I died, like I died, my life isn't mine, so yes, I hurt right now, but it isn't about me anyway. Instead of having that mentality, on the opposite side, what we actually have is a subconscious sense of entitlement. And we would never say we had this, but we have the subconscious sense of uh, God, it's almost like God owes me. Again, we would never say it, but you can see it in the way you respond to pain. We have this subconscious sense of entitlement that I follow Jesus. There's certain prayer requests he has to answer. And when there's a certain amount that he has to come through for me, there's a certain level, for different people it's a different level, Well, there's a certain level of just goodness that has to happen in my life. And if it goes below that level of goodness, I'm upset. And there's just a certain way that other Christians, I'm entitled for other Christians to treat me a certain way. And if they go below that level, I'm I'm okay to be bitter against God and against, I'm okay to just pull out. I'm okay to not give my all and live all out for Jesus and all sort of stuff because certain things have happened to me. That's a sense of entitlement. And you can see it in a way that you respond to pain, all of which Joseph never engaged in. See, when you're a sacrifice, when you just consider yourself to be dead, your physical body alive, but you're actually, the rest of you is just dead, you have no more rights. There is no sense of entitlement. It's just whatever the Lord allows to happen to me, I'm going to serve him in that. And it's okay to hurt in that. We see that in Joseph. We see that Joseph hurt in that. And it's not bad to hurt. But the hurt doesn't derail us, doesn't paralyze us. And that is so huge. But anyway, let's get back to Joseph now because now we're finally, finally, after all these weeks, we're getting to the good part of a story, right? Like he's been suffering, 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 suffering. And now we're finally going to get to the part where we all know he's coming out of prison. Like we started to look last week already at him, you know, interpreting Pharaoh's dream. So let's, let's keep going. So Genesis 40 verse 14 Okay, Joseph finally, he, this is his ticket out of prison, right? Only remember me when it was well with you and please do me the kindness uh, to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. So, he, I mean, he's finally getting the answer to prayer, right? I mean, he, uh, do you know what, I mean, the cupbearer, this is like, this is not a coincidence, okay? Joseph's pumped when he sees the cupbearer. Um, the cupbearer was one of Pharaoh's key servants, okay? Uh, he's one of the inner circle. There's not many people who can talk to Pharaoh, but the cupbearer is one of them. 
I mean, the cupbearer is always with Pharaoh. He's one of trust, Pharaoh's most trusted uh, servants. He's the guy that, that brings Pharaoh all of his drinks and then tastes them first to make sure they're not poisoned, okay? So there's some pros and cons to the job. But overall, <laughs> Pharaoh's just watching you. I'm going to watch you for another five minutes. Take another sip. But, uh, and so that's the cupbearer, okay? He's always with Pharaoh, but he's one of those few guys who he's always with Pharaoh. And he can talk to Pharaoh, and there's a relationship there with Pharaoh. So imagine being Joseph now. You've been, you know, all these years in slavery, and now you've been imprisoned, and now the cupbearer, this, like, one of the key, key servants of Pharaoh, happens to get sent to your prison. You connect with him. He happens to get a dream in which God shows him that he's going to be restored to favor with Pharaoh, and you're, like, and you're the guy who interprets the dream, so he likes you, I mean, if you're Joseph, you're thinking, woohoo, I'm just about out. Like, the cupbearer is Joseph's ticket out of prison. He's not out of prison yet, but God is already beginning to move, and he can see the door cracking open for his deliverance. Now, the question I have for you today is, I've prayed with a bunch of people recently who are kind of in that same spot. How many of you have ever experienced, you're in this dark, dark time in your life, and then God begins to move. He starts doing miracles. Now, he hasn't delivered you yet, You're not out of the woods. You're not out of the dungeon yet. You're not out of the dark. But he starts doing God things that couldn't be a coincidence and you finally see the doors open and your deliverance is on the way. I know how many of you have been there. That's where Joseph is right here. He's been all these years. God, where are you? God, you know, save me. He's still being faithful. And now, out of heaven falls the cupbearer, the dream, the interpretation. God, this has to be you. I'm almost out of here. And so we keep reading. Verse 23 But the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Man, right? Like, come on, God, right? I mean, if if anybody ever deserved a break, after a couple of months of studying this story now, I'm like, Jesus, if anybody ever needed a break, it's Joseph. And here he is, it's been one thing after another, after another, after another, and now he sees the door finally open, the light's coming in, this can't be a coincidence, God's at work, and it is God, and I'm just about out of here, and then, oh, not yet. And then we're back to the first verse where we started this message, 41 verse 1 is the very next verse, after two whole years. And I just love how Moses puts the word whole in there. It doesn't just say after two years. It's not approximately two years. It's not like most or bits of two years. It's two whole years. In other words, I mean, this felt very long to Joseph. This felt very long to Joseph. And I wonder how many of you have ever been here too. And there's God. He's working. He gave you the word. You're just about delivered. In fact, you started to see the thing come true. You started to see the healing. You started to see the miracle. And all of a sudden, and you're just about out. There it is. I can see freedom. And then all of a sudden, next thing, nothing. And I want to spend a few minutes now, because I want to talk about something. This is a pattern. This is a pattern. This is not just something that happened to Joseph. This is not just something I know of one or two people. This is something I know many of us here, and that I've experienced at, you know, at some level in my life as well. That many people, you look through the Bible, you look at Moses, 40 years. You know, you look at Daniel, you look at Abraham, you look at all these people. The promise of God, the deliverance, God's working, there's miracles, and suddenly it all stops, and there's a period of waiting. And I want to just spend a few minutes talking about waiting. 
because it is, it's a pattern that you will see, like I said, in Scripture, it's a pattern. It's the way God works. It's just the way God works. You know, a couple weeks ago, um, Pastor Ray, uh, at one of our staff meetings on Tuesday, he was actually sharing, not about this verse, not about this, this message, not about the story at all, but I just, it just made the link when I was getting ready for it this week. It was like, oh, that's really kind of neat. He was sharing how with pretty much every single one of the big missions, we have all these missions, ministries that we're doing now here at Southland, with pretty much every single one of them, uh, coincidentally enough, same as Joseph's waiting period, but he's, from the time when God first gives him the vision, we're going to do this, he gets excited, God says, we're, we're doing this, he's had to pretty much for every single one of them wait exactly two years before actually anything actually happened. And, and he was sharing how, like, at first he, you know, God one morning gave him this vision for summer camp, and like, we're going to reach you know, thousands of kids for Jesus. And um, by the way, we're just seeing such tremendous testimonies through that ministry. It's unbelievable. And so God gave him this vision. We're going to do it. Two years. God, from the time God shows him, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And then after that, nothing happens. And then two years, and all of a sudden, oh, now it's going to happen. Uh, four wins, same thing. Oh, this awesome ministry. So many people need to be helped right now. We've got the people. We've got the money. We've got everything. Two years. And he just went through he just went through a whole bunch like that. And Tupandani had a bunch of years and, 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 all, and he just named a whole bunch of them uh, that went like this. And it, because it's something, it's just something God does. And of course, when you're in that gap, like imagine being Joseph. I mean, you've seen the light at the end of the tunnel. It has to be God. It's not, it certainly isn't coincidence that the cupbearer is there in his cell. It certainly is God at work. Imagine how that feels now in the gap. He's thinking, okay, three days I'm out of here. Okay, Okay, we're on day four. Anytime now. <sighs> day five, day six, day seven, day eight. Finally, months, now years. God, what are you doing, right? Life in that gap is tough. It's in that gap when you're stuck, when you're waiting. This is when we question, did God ever really speak to me? And was that God? Does God hear me? Is God ever going to help me? Can God help me? The gap is one of the toughest places to live, and it's in the gap where God really tests and stretches our, our trust and our faith. And what I want to do is I want to show you, though, now why God puts us in the gap. I want to show you why God makes us wait. But before we do that, I just have to help you get a little bit of perspective on how God, how God tests our lives, okay? So I'm going to just put the message on pause for just a minute. I, I mean, we're going to come back to why God makes us wait. But before we do that, I just want to make sure, if I just talk about waiting, some of you guys are going to leave here, and you're going to think the only test God does to us is the waiting test. And the waiting test is one component. It's one piece of a much bigger tool belt of tests that God uses on, uses on us. And, and it, it can be imbalanced, and I don't want to leave, and you're going to see why in just a minute, but you're going to see why I don't want to leave you imbalanced, that it's all about waiting. That's only one thing, that's only one way that God tests us, okay? If we pull back in Joseph's life, we'll see that many different ways. We'll see the balance of how God tests us. Because like, we, like we've seen throughout this series, God was testing Joseph's character. That's what it says in Psalm 105. All the things that happened to Joseph, it, they were part of God's sovereign plan, and they were part of God's testing of Joseph's character. And so we see different tests that Joseph had to go through. One thing Joseph had to go through was being treated badly by others and being betrayed. You ever been there? Okay, that's actually a test. Are you bitter towards those people? You're failing the test. That's actually a test. Joseph had to go through it too. His brothers, threw, his brothers sold him into slavery, his own brothers. I bet you haven't been hurt that bad. I bet you pretty much most of the things we have here today, some of you might actually be up at that level 
And I, you know, that's very sad that that have to happen to you, but it's a test. Most of us, the stuff that we're bitter about is less than that. That's a test. He had to be, God lets us be treated badly by people. Okay? Another part of the test is he's now sold into slavery. He's missing his home, as we saw. He's missing the land of the Hebrews. He's missing his family. But God, and God says, but will you work hard for your boss anyway? And we, I preached a whole message about that. One of the tests is, will you do your best? Will you go to work, and no matter how bad your boss is, will you every day give your absolute best? Will you submit under authority and serve in the church and work at your workplace 100% and give your best? That's one of the tests. You're busy, you're going hard, you're doing all this sort of stuff. Another test is temptation. And then we see, and we could go through a whole bunch of others, then there's this waiting test. Okay? But I want you to see that it's not just waiting. There's the busy test, which is go hard for Potiphar. Joseph, I want to see if you'll work so hard, even for a guy that you shouldn't be in slavery. And Joseph passed that test. Now God says, now I'm going to give you the opposite test, and I'm going to make you sit in a dungeon where you can't do anything for two years. Do you see how those are two very opposite things? And Joseph has to pass both tests. Now the reason I wanted to highlight that the fact that there's these different tests is because some people do better on one test than the other. Lazy people love the waiting test. Oh, hallelujah, Lord, I'm just so thankful I don't have to do anything. <laughs> and God says, that's not spiritual, okay? Joseph didn't pass the waiting test because he just liked doing nothing. No, no, he had to pass both tests. He had, the, the working one was a bigger test. It was longer, it was more years. God said, I want, you got to pass both. You're going to be a follower. You've got to pass the give it your all every day at work and go for it and serve in the church and give God your absolute best. And then he says, but then I'm also going to trap you at one point for a small period of time for a couple of years. And I'm also going to test you. Can you pass this one, the waiting test? Both are important. It's very essential. But the question now is, why the waiting test? Well, I touched on a couple already. I'll just skim over them. I mean, part of it is certainly character. Uh, there's something that happens in the waiting period. There's something that happens to your trust and your faith where those, those character traits can be very flimsy. They can look good on the outside. You can look like a very faith-filled person and a person who trusts God. You can look like that very easily in church here on a Sunday morning. But there's something about waiting and it's not here yet and there's nothing you can do and you're stuck in the dungeon. There's something about waiting there that takes faith and trust that look good and makes them actually strong and durable. And, and that in itself is just a wonderful thing. But I think there's a much more important reason why God gives us the waiting test. It's more important even than those. And I think the number one reason, I'll tell you the number one reason why, the biggest reason and the biggest purpose, I think, in God's heart for why he gives us the waiting test, and it's this, he wants us to love him. I'm going to say that again. I think the biggest reason God makes us wait is because he just wants us to love him. See, here's the thing that can happen. In all the busyness of doing stuff for God, which is so important, because that's part of the test. Are you willing to work hard for God and serve him and work hard at work and do it all for Jesus' glory? Are you willing to give it your best? The Bible says a man who doesn't work should not eat. That's what the Bible says. So hard work, that's a huge thing. Serving, the Bible says you've got to serve. All of that, hugely important. Awesome, that's part of how we love God. Massive, 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 and you've got to pass that. And that's, you know, the biggest chunk of your life is usually that test, not the waiting test. But the problem is this. Even though serving and working are such good things and we need to do them for God and we need to show God our love through those things, what can happen so subtly and so easily, isn't this true, 
is that in all of our busyness working for God and serving God and working at work for God and doing all this stuff for God, in the busyness, we can go from loving Jesus to actually just having a business relationship with him. Isn't that true? Where we just get so busy doing stuff for God that the delight in who Jesus is and just loving him actually just bleeds out of the relationship and all we have left is this dry, duty Christian life. And all I do is I work hard and I do stuff for God and I serve and I check off my boxes and I do it and there's no love relationship with Jesus. There's no intimacy with Jesus. Well, guess what? I mean, I've said it a hundred times up here. I'll say it another, you know, however many times God gives me before I die. I'm gonna keep preaching it. It's all about relationship. Jesus didn't create you to have a business relationship with you. He didn't create you because he's like, oh, wow, this person's going to do amaz- such amazing things for me, and I just want to watch them go. No. That's part of it. He, he wants to use you. He wants to partner with you. But Jesus made you because he wants to fellowship with you. He wants to have a love relationship with you. And so... One of the things he will do sometimes in our lives for, at various times. Because it's so easy. We get so busy for God. God, look at the needs in the world. Look at the needs in the church. And we're going hard and we're using our gifts and abilities and it's all so wonderful. But suddenly a shift takes place. And for a lot of us, this actually becomes about me. This is where I get my self-worth from. My self-worth, my value comes from the important stuff that I do for God. And no longer is it that my soul is like Isaiah 40. My, I rise up on wings like eagles by the Spirit because I just love Jesus. It's not about that anymore. It's I feel so important because of all the stuff I'm doing. And I'm so busy with God. There's no delight in the relationship. It's just a business relationship. And Jesus says, that's not why I made you. And in his mercy and grace, and, and some of our personalities are more given to this than others. You know, some of us are just achievement-driven, and that's not bad God made you that way, but it just means it's easier for you to fall into this ditch. And we just have no purpose in life. Like, to just love Jesus? No way, never. I've got to do something, and it's all about doing, and sometimes God will take you and stick you in a dungeon for two years or whatever. I'm not, I mean, the two years isn't what's important. It could be, you know, six months or 10 years or 50 or whatever, right? Not a formula. But God will, like with Joseph, he will put you in a dungeon and suddenly this Joseph who is so talented and he's doing so much stuff for God and he's doing so much ministry and he's being so successful and God said, now I just want you to be here. And we look at that story and we think, what a waste, God. I mean, the man has talent. The man has smarts. Well, we looked at it a couple weeks ago. The man even has looks. I mean, he's got it all, God. What a waste. He should be advancing your kingdom out there in the world. He should be doing great things. What a waste to have him just sit in a dungeon and do nothing for two years. And God says, actually, you've missed the whole point of everything because the first and greatest commandment is not do great things for God. The first and greatest commandment Jesus said was this. He said it a whole bunch of times in the Gospels. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. That's the most important thing. Now, of course, I want to just pull back here. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I don't want to put a big distinction between doing things for Jesus and loving him because actually a big part of the way we love him is through doing things, right? I'm not saying that doing isn't important. I mean, one of the ways we love Jesus is we serve him and we work hard at work and that's, that's so important. My point is there's a danger that sometimes these things that are supposed to be done in love for him actually just kind of become a duty to something we do for ourselves or just whatever. It's a business relationship with him. And that's not what the Lord 
wants from us. He wants us to love him. And so there are times when he will get us stuck. They'll just get us stuck. I talk to people more like this more and more. And they had, you had big dreams. I was gonna be, I was gonna do this for God. I was gonna do this for God. I had big dreams. And now they're in my office and it's like, I'm, God's not using me. Why, why isn't God using me? And, and you feel stuck and you're trapped or you're just in this place and you're just waiting and there's nothing you can do. And, and Joseph will have felt the same thing. All this promise in his life, all this dream, and now he's able to do nothing. God's trapped him. He's cornered him. And the thing you have to understand is when that waiting time comes in that dungeon, you have to understand that the, the, the dungeon isn't a punishment from God. It's an invitation. God's not punishing Joseph when he puts him in the dungeon. This is Joseph's invitation. Joseph, you've been so busy. I mean, yeah, no matter how busy you are, you've got to make time for God. But, but Joseph, you've been so busy, I'm going to give you two years where the only thing you have is me. And God will put you into a place of waiting. He will put you into a place where you're stuck, and you won't pass that test until you learn to enjoy Jesus just for him. You won't pass that test. The more you fight, the more you say, God, I've got to do something. I've got to, uh, and all this stuff. The more you do that, you are failing that test. You have, the invitation is there. Come and enjoy me. Now, I'm going to move on here in just a second. I, I do want to say one thing. Some of you, I don't, want, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Some of you are thinking, okay, my love relationship with Jesus is, my love relationship with Jesus isn't doing that good right now. So what Chris is telling me to do is stop working and stop serving. You don't put yourself in the waiting test. God puts you there, okay? Okay, don't, don't be presumptuous on God. And the, the other thing is, if you're suffering in your marriage, let me, let me put it for you this way too. God has to put you there. That's my point. And you can work on this even while you're not in the waiting test. If you know what the waiting test is about, you might be able to avoid some of it if you work on it when you're not in it. Is that not motivating? It's motivating to me. But you don't work on your marriage. If your marriage is suffering, you don't stop serving and going to work and paying the bills so you can work on your love relationship. That's going to make things worse. You keep doing the things you're supposed to be doing, but you don't fix. If you're obeying with the wrong motives, you don't fix your motives by disobeying. The Bible says we're supposed to work and serve. You fix your motives by keep doing the right things with the wrong motives and now bring the love side into it. Bring the spark back. Bring back the times of fellowship with Jesus where you just worship him. You know, some of us guys especially, no emotional connection with Jesus whatsoever. That's wrong. And we think that's not manly. That's not part of what it is. I just want to do this side of things. You know what? God made you to love him. And so in the midst of all your busyness providing for your family and serving God, you've got to bring back this whole thing of worship. You just sit before the Lord Jesus and you think about how good he is and you thank him and your heart begins to move and you ask him to fill, him with your Holy, fill you with his Holy Spirit and you begin to love him. You begin to have a conversation with him. You start talking to him about life, not just being busy for him, but you just start conversing with him and having a relationship with him and you bring the spark back in. But God can sometimes overrule and he will sometimes take you and just corner you himself and he'll make you do it. And that's something else. But the amazing thing is, here's the amazing thing. If you pass this test, if you pass the waiting test, which is really not so much about waiting, but actually about just learning to enjoy Jesus. If you pass the, Jesus, I actually just love you for you. It might, I'm not building my self-identity on all the things I do. I'm actually building on how much I just love you. If you pass that test, 
I'm going to show you now in Joseph's story the second detail that I wanted to point out that many people miss in the whole Pharaoh story. It's just so awesome. If you pass that test and you learn to love Jesus for Jesus and you cease to have just a business relationship with Jesus and you start to have a love relationship with Jesus, a powerful change is going to come over you that everybody else is going to notice. And I want to show you this now. We're going to go, so I already showed you last week, we looked at Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dream. We're going to jump now to the end. I want to show you what Pharaoh says about Joseph after his conversation with Joseph. And this is huge, okay? Because Joseph goes into this waiting period, okay? He goes in, already he was faithful to God. I mean, we've seen Joseph, amazing character. But he goes in this two-year waiting period. When he comes out, not only can he, um, can he interpret Pharaoh's dream by the Spirit of God, he hears God so well, he could do that before. But not only that, can he, tell, can he understand what God's saying, but the other thing is he's so full of the Spirit of God that he's able to, he has the wisdom to know what Pharaoh should do about it so that he can save the entire nation of Egypt and all the surrounding nations. But not only that, not only does he come out of this two-year waiting time where it's just him and God, there's nothing else to do. It's just him and God. Not only does he come out able to interpret the dream with the wisdom to know how to save all of Egypt and the surrounding nations, but there's a third thing that happens, and we see it in Pharaoh's conversation. Here it is, 41 verse 38, and this is what, I want you to see what Pharaoh notices about Joseph. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this? Think about this. This is after two years of waiting where it's just Joseph and God. That's it. Joseph can't work for God. It's just him and God. It's just relationship. And at the end of two years like that, Pharaoh says to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? NIV puts it this one, this way. Can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God. After two years of it's just him and God, when Joseph comes out, you want to notice something? He's not operating on human energy or power or wisdom anymore, is he? Though all of chapter 1 is one, 41, sorry, all of chapter 41 is one big story of Joseph filled with some kind of supernatural force. He knows what Pharaoh's dream is. He knows what Pharaoh needs to do about it. He knows how to save the nations. He's humble through the whole thing. We've looked at that as well. It's not even about him. There's this love. There's this grace on him. And it's also supernatural and noticeable that Pharaoh notices it. Joseph comes out and he's so not natural. Pharaoh looks around at his advisors and says, is there anybody else like this guy who is so filled with the Spirit of God? So filled with the Spirit of God. See, Pharaoh had all the money in the world, most powerful, wealthy man in the world. He could have anything he wanted but he couldn't have the Spirit of God. It's not something you can buy. And so Pharaoh notices this on Joseph, and of course, what does he do next? He raises up Joseph to be second in, the, in command, and, and so begins a new chapter in Joseph's life. The waiting chapter is over. We're back into busyness, crazy work, ministry, all that sort of stuff. But Joseph is, but all of this is coming out of Joseph is filled with the Spirit of God. And now here's where this comes home now. Here's where this comes home. See, this is not just some story. Oh, boy, I love that Joseph story, and oh, I, I love the movie, you know, the animation was so good, and blah, blah, and that, what a great story. I'm glad God put enjoyable stories in the Bible. That's not what this story is about. I mean, I think it is enjoyable. I think it is a good story, but that's, it wasn't put there just for enjoyment. It was put there, these details. Joseph was filled with the Spirit of God. Why did you put that in there, Holy Spirit? It has something to do with us. And here's where this thing comes home. The same Spirit of God 
that filled Joseph in the Old Testament is the same Spirit of God who wants to fill every single person. If you're sitting here today and you're listening to this right now, we're all here together. I want you to hear this. This is not just me saying something. It's not a formula. Joseph was a real person. The same Holy Spirit, the same Spirit of God that filled Joseph way back then and made such a difference that Pharaoh said, who can we find anywhere that is like this man who has the Spirit of God on him? The same Spirit of God that filled Joseph is the same Spirit of God that wants to fill you and me today. In fact, in fact, it should be easier for us than it was for him. Do you know what Jesus said? I'm going to show you something. You know what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit? John 14, 16 to 7. Jesus said this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, in whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus won't be wrong about anything he said. He promised it, and that time is here. In other words, what we read, when we read about Joseph being filled with the Spirit of God, we're not reading about Superman. We're reading what the Christian life, the normal Christian life is actually supposed to be. It's not a life free from pain. It's not like when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you just feel happy all the time. I explained that at the beginning. Joseph felt pain, but he was so filled with the Spirit of God that something powerful happened in him and other people noticed and things happened and he was able to accomplish great things for the kingdom of God. I'm not talking here either about the theoretical filling of the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about the theoretical filling of the Holy Spirit. A lot of Christians out there today, they want to argue this thing. That, and the thing they want to argue is that technically, and they have their verses, technically every person who's a believer has the Holy Spirit in them. And they'll argue that till they're blue in the face, and I'm not even here to argue with them. Technically it's true, and you ask them, do you have the Holy Spirit in you? Well, look at Acts and Romans and this and that. Look at me. I'm a believer. I have the Holy Spirit in me. Okay, good. You technically, theoretically, have the Holy Spirit in you. But let me ask you something else. Can anybody else tell? Can you even tell? whoop de doo da ding You've got the theoretical Holy Spirit in you. Is that what Joseph had? I mean, he was, yeah, I'm a believer, so I have the Spirit of God in me. No, no, he had something real that it, it affected him, it affected the people around him. So I'm not talking here today, and we won't go into the technical having the Holy Spirit. And what I'm talking about today, Jesus did not promise in John 14, 16, and 17, hey guys, great promise. All the disciples are listening. I am going to send you the theoretical Holy Spirit. And he won't do a single thing in your lives. You won't notice it at all. You'll continue living worldly. You'll have worldly anxieties and pursuits. You'll have no power in your life for holiness. Nobody will notice, but you can take comfort in the fact that you have the Holy Spirit. And the disciples are cheering and woo, yeah, awesome Jesus. Love the promise of the new covenant. That's not what Jesus promised. He did not promise us some theoretical, technical filling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a real person of the Godhead with real power. And it's not some theoretical thing. We see it at work in Joseph's life. The Holy Spirit changed Joseph. He could do things for God that he couldn't do in the natural, and people noticed it on him. Out of his relationship and fellowship with God, the Spirit of God came on him, and it was a real thing. And Jesus calls us 
Exactly to that. And now, what I just said before, here's another thing here, because here's the thing you have to understand. If Joseph could have the Spirit of God, it should be easier for us. Let's list all the things Joseph didn't have. Joseph did not have any part of the Bible. Didn't have the Old Testament, didn't have the New. Joseph did not even know the name of Jesus. Jesus hadn't come yet. He didn't have that revelation of God. He only knew him as as they knew him then, but he didn't know the, the part about Jesus. He didn't have a church Again, he was all by himself in wicked Egypt, and yet he could, by the Spirit of God, he was able to transform a wicked nation. One man, without even the Bible, without a church, without the knowledge of Jesus, just by having the Spirit of God in him, one man could do that. Now let me ask you this. If he could do that then, and Jesus has promised it to us now, when I leave, I will send the Holy Spirit to live in you. We've got the whole Bible, Old and New Testament. We've got the whole book of Acts. It's all about the Holy Spirit. We know Jesus. We've got the revelation of Jesus. And we have the church. If Joseph lived by the Spirit of God, it is ten times more that every Christian today should be living not by the technically I have the Holy Spirit in me and I can prove it to you by this verse, but I can't prove it to you with my life. But the real Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, a real person in the Godhead who makes a real difference in your life. And my question today is, if one man could do what Joseph did by the Spirit of God in Egypt, what would happen if an entire church got filled with the real Holy Spirit here at Southland? If we actually took that promise of Jesus seriously, that this is actually a real story and this is a real promise, and I could actually be filled by a real person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. What would happen if this entire church got filled with the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you what would happen. The book of Acts would happen again. That's what would happen. The book of Acts would break out here in Steinbeck and Manitoba and in Canada. In fact, that's what Pastor Ray prays for. That's what church renewal is all about. The book of Acts breaking out again in our midst as we give our lives to Jesus. Now you say, well, how do I do it? How do I get filled with the Holy Spirit? Where's the formula, right? We always want a formula. Where's the box I check online and then God will mail the Holy Spirit to me and that'll be good, right? Where's the magical prayer? If I just pray this prayer five times this week, I get the Holy Spirit. It's not a formula. It's a relationship. The the life of Joseph, Joseph shows us the pathway. It's a life of obedience even when you hurt. It's a life of serving others. It's a life of fearing God. It's a life of integrity. It's a life of relating to Jesus and loving him. And as you live that life, Jesus then says, ask. As you live this life of I'm a sacrifice. Oh yeah, that's right. It's not about me. Jesus, I'm exchanging. I'm giving you everything. In exchange for your life, I'm giving you my life. I have no rights. And now you begin to live this Joseph life of integrity and obedience. And now with that, now you begin to ask, Jesus, give me the Holy Spirit. And as you begin to do that, the Holy Spirit begins to come into you. And I'm not talking about crazy manifestations or all that sort of stuff. Sometimes that does happen. That's not what I'm talking about. The fullness of the Holy Spirit is what we see with Joseph. It changes lives and people notice it. And you begin to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to finish this message now, and I want to give you a a challenge. I I like to do that in my messages. Something you can take home with you and try. Because again, getting filled with the Holy Spirit is not a formula, but I want to give you three things you can do, steps you can take. And, uh, And I think these will be very helpful for you. The first thing I would encourage you to do is sign up for an Empower Retreat. Many of you have been on Encounter. A big chunk of you have been on Encounter. The Empower Retreat is the follow-up to the Encounter. It's totally different than the Encounter, though, because at the Empower, it's all about the Holy Spirit. And we've actually just 
We've at, we're actually, our next Empower Retreat is going to be here in the building because we couldn't get enough people there at Pinawa. And it's, so it's only 50 bucks, just like the encounter. We're bringing it back in the building. We can have tons and tons of more people here at one time, and it's cheaper. But the Empower Retreat is a whole retreat, Friday and Saturday. Uh, and all it is about is the Holy Spirit. And what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And you, you will have an opportunity. People will pray for you. You'll have an opportunity to have a conversation with the Holy Spirit. And it, it is just an awesome retreat. And I, w- I, would just, I would just say, do it. Sign up for it, and, and you won't regret it. Second thing I would, I would, I would uh, dare you to do. I, I've got a double dog dare for you, okay? You know what, can I just stop here for just a second? I'm talking mostly to the men here, not the, not the ladies. You know why some of you won't do number one? Because you're chicken. <laughs> I mean it. Your wife would have gone two years ago already. And you have all your reasons why, but you know what it is at root? You are chicken. So I double-dog dare you to sign up for the Empower Retreat. And I double-dog dare you to do number two, which is in your devils. I, I dare you to do this. I dare you, with God and your journal, to do an honest self-assessment of yourself this week and say, which one am I? Am I one of these Christians who is technically filled with the Holy Spirit? Or am I actually walking in some kind of fullness of the Holy Spirit and fellowship with Him. I dare you to do that, just on your own. I don't want to hear about it. You don't need to email me and say how badly you failed or you did well or whatever. Just on your own, do an honest self-assessment. Because the Bible says the Holy Spirit's supposed to be filling you. And Joseph did it in the Old Testament. It should be easier for us today. Lastly, pray every day this week, Jesus, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Well, we're going to sing a worship song. We'll be about a minute over, but it's just a powerful song. And I want you just to stand, because I'm just going to pray for you right now that you can, God's going to fill you with his Holy Spirit. We just have to ask him. He's a real person. We can ask. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the worship team is going to lead us in a powerful song, and we can use that song as a response to him. Dear Jesus, first of all, we confess. We know all this stuff in theory, but many of us, we have just not lived in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We confess that we have ignored the Holy Spirit. We confess that we have not had fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We want to give you our lives. We confess that we have, done, we have lived for ourselves rather, rather than for you. We want to live for you. And as we begin to live for you this week, Jesus, I pray, Jesus, we need it here at Southland, and I need it, and my family needs it, and this community needs it, and this country needs it. This country needs for a church somewhere to get serious about being filled with the Holy Spirit, and we want to be that church, Jesus. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.